Bibles uh, open in front of us, shall we, to John chapter 15. And uh, let's, uh, since Paul has prayed for us, uh, for me as I preach, for you as you listen, let's uh, continue on. We've been uh, walking through a series in John's Gospel. If you have uh, just joined us, uh, we're currently, we're probably about just over two-thirds of the way through. And uh, we're, we're basically in this, this section between uh, chapter 13 and 17, which is often known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the day before, he was led to a cross to be crucified and killed uh, in our place. Uh, he is leaving some final instructions and encouragement with his disciples. And I, I found it remarkable sitting this morning, hearing the message from Richard Cokin. Uh, so if you're listening on the podcast or on audio or something, you should stop now and go and listen to that first. Uh, it was striking, wasn't it? How many of you want to plant churches? How many of you want to do it tomorrow? Yes, it was, it was energizing, wasn't it? But how important for us to think that through within the context of what we're looking at tonight in John 15. Because it's great but it's hard. How often do we really think about this, even the song that we've just been singing, the, the words that we sing? When the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. But actually, when the road's marked with suffering, how do we respond? I love the Bible. I'll tell you why. The picture will show it. There's no small print in it. I've been in the process of tying up a contract or two. Sounds like I'm very important, but it's really not. It's really boring. Um, and the, the detail that my solicitor has been sending me over and all the small print that's contained within that is uh, it's mind-boggling. I don't get it. But I love that when we come to the Bible, there is absolutely no small print. Jesus is just so... Bold and so open in saying to us, here's what it's going to be like. Now, let's remember the context. Andy's excellent sermon last week reminded us that we are to remain in Jesus Christ, to abide in him, live in him, and that we are to bear fruit. Verse 16 said, you did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit. We are to remain in him and we are to live fruitful lives for him. And all of that within the context of verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So the whole passage before in verses 1 to 17 is just love, love. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved. Remain in me. We'll all be okay. And then comes verse 18. It's love, 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 love. And then it's if the world hates you. Hate? Where did that come from? We maybe weren't expecting that. But again, this is just quite simply where there's no small print here. Jesus just tells us what it's going to be like. And I think this is a kind of perspective that we need. Yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to preach the gospel. But there will be opposition. Yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to plant plenty of churches in the next 10 years. But there's going to be opposition. The question that this begs is how are we going to manage it? 
How are we going to cope with this opposition when it comes? What, what's it going to look like for us? And in fact, there's an even deeper question at a level below that. The question we're actually asking at the start of our sermon tonight really is, well, why? Why are we persecuted? Why are we treated the way we are treated and mistreated? And these are important things to consider. Because I think sometimes we think, yeah, let's do the church planting. Let's, do, let's preach the gospel. Everybody's going to come. These are all good things and we must do them. Must, imperative, must do these things. But yet recognize the cost. It reminds you of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, a whole list of a line of godly men and women. And it says of them, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, a whole list of others who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. When women received back their dead, raised to life again, were like, yes, give me that. But read on, because there's no small print. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Well, still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Put to death by the sword. Some went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. Indeed, as it says next, the world was not worthy of them. So how do we do it? Why do they hate us? What's behind it? How do we deal with that? Well, this is what we want to look at tonight. And I just want to do two things. Look at number one, the pressure to stray. Keeping in mind that the whole first half of the chapter has been about remain in me. Okay? And then secondly, the ability to stay. Okay? God is with us. So number one, the pressure to stray. So yet the context is, Jesus is saying, remain, remain, remain. Remain in me, abide in me, and you will bear fruit, gospel fruit, for the kingdom. Uh, but then we get the hint straight away that, uh, that even the use of the word remain and abide gives us a sense, a wee question, that maybe there is the possibility that we might not remain or there's something that's going to threaten our remaining that it's not going to be as easy as we think it is and certainly chapter 16 verse 1 which says all this I have told you so that you will not go astray so astray we go astray rather than remain there is something that makes us want to do that or think about doing that and it's the hatred of the world but why four quick reasons Number one, verse 19 tells us we don't belong to the world. Look with me. If you, well, verse 18 first. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. I wonder if you like watching uh, movies, if you see uh, some of the Chronicles of Narnia films. There's an interesting scene at the start of the second one, in which, which is uh, Prince Caspian. 
And near to the start of the film, you've got the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They, they're, they're living their lives, but they're living their lives like they belong somewhere else and like they actually long for somewhere else. And it's their experience of Narnia, of meeting the mighty Aslan, that has completely changed their perspective of their own lives and their own time and setting. Especially when they remember that in the land that they are destined for, the land that they are longing for, they're kings and queens. That, as you would expect, manifests itself in their lives. And at the start of the film, we see Peter in a fight. I don't think it's so different for those of us who believe in and follow Jesus Christ. We live for another land, as it were, don't we? We live for another land because our faith in Jesus Christ has has made us different. It's given us an experience of life and that makes us long for the time when we will be with him and be like him as he is. We, were, we are, by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, have our whole orientation changed. We, are, we become very, very different. You were once darkness, you are now light. You were once far away, you are now near. Now that makes our relationship with the world then consequently very, very different. And the fact that we belong somewhere else manifests itself in our lives, or at least it should. And that can lead to some unpleasant confrontations and even serious hatred. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hate you. See what Jesus is saying here? You are fundamentally different to people in the world who do not know and love Jesus Christ, who do not follow him and keep his commands in love, as John 15 has already been telling us earlier. If you love me, you will obey what I command. The way we as Christians do things, the way we think of things, look at things the way we see ourselves is different or at least it should be our view on what matters on what counts on what is of value and what is not when we become Christians essentially changes to the extent that well sometimes our family sometimes our friends sometimes our work colleagues sometimes Others that, who have known us find it very difficult to relate to us and find it very difficult to figure us out and indeed might even struggle to relate to us. And it's sometimes that very lack of understanding that will lead to hostility. Sometimes even extending beyond hostility to being just out and out antagonism. Now for us in Western society as we are here in Scotland, that the extent of that hostility varies. The extent to which we feel the hatred of the world, of those around us, varies. Maybe it, maybe it emerges subtly. Maybe it emerges personally for us. And in our own families, you are maybe shunned. You are maybe ignored. You're not invited to the things that your family is invited to and so on. Maybe it gets a little bit worse than that. I remember a, a girl at uni when I pastored the church in St. Andrews who, who was basically told by her parents that having become a Christian, 
they would be removing any kind of financial support for her and would make it therefore impossible for her to continue university. Sometimes we experience it in a wider sense, even nationally in terms of legislation, the things that we are eager to see corrected in our nation are ignored. The point of legislation where we just think this is taking a nosedive and we are careering for a worse society. There are lives at stake with this. And we are not listened to. But in other places, it's not so subtle. I mean, you should all be subscribing really to something like Evangelicals Now, which has a great section in terms of helping you pray through what's going on in the world. Or maybe the, uh, Barnabas or Open Doors UK send out regular emails telling you about some of the situations that are going on in the world. Because I think we see in some of these more hostile places, the hatred is horrific. I read this week even of a story of a, a, a lady called Sahil in a country in South Asia who she and her husband in a country that is 99.8% Muslim uh, became Christians and eventually they were, they were ostracized when their family found out and they moved away to another country they were so disappointed by this break of relationship with her family they got back in touch and slowly but surely built bridges eventually to the point where they felt they could go back into that, their own hometown and, and they did so and then they built even deeper relationships to the extent that they sat down for a meal together with her mother and father and within four bites of her food she was gone because her mother and father had poisoned her it's a true story this is the extent that some Christians feel the hatred of the world. And we need to be aware of these things. But Jesus reminds us here and encourages us to think through that the fact that remembering that we do not belong to the world will actually help us to remain in Jesus and not go astray even at the threat of this hatred that comes. And I say these things so that we understand this hatred and understand these things because if we don't understand the difference between ourselves and the world in terms of who we belong to, then we are going to be continually shocked, continually surprised, continually confused, and quite possibly even defeated at some of the experiences that we have. So Jesus tells us that we don't belong to the world. That would be the first thing. The second thing in verse 20 is telling us quite clearly on the, the, the other side of things, we belong to Jesus. Verse 20 says, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. When we become Christians, we know we follow Jesus. He is our king and our identity is entirely tied up with him. And in some sense, the world doesn't like that because the world then realizes that it cannot own you. What Jesus does is he makes claim on our lives when we come to him in faith and in repentance, trusting in his blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And where we commit ourselves to him, we are dying to our old self and we are living for Christ. 
It's as if he says, I am the vine. When you come to me, you belong to me. It's, it, it's me. It's your relationship with me that matters. I, I cut your roots to race and social class, etc. These things no longer define you. I'm the vine. You are my branch and your citizenship is in me and in my place, heaven. Your identity is entirely tied up with me. And he goes on to say, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than the master, his master. And truly Jesus is our master. We are submissive to him. We belong to him. And if we, if he is one who has, despite the perfect life that he lived, despite the perfect good that he did while he was here and walked this earth, if he received hatred and persecution, we can't really expect to receive a better treatment than he did. You see, in practically every realm, a master has it better than his servants do. And Jesus is quite simply saying here, if they treat him in this way, they'll surely have no qualms about opposing us. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We were thinking last week about what it's like to remain in Jesus and how it's all about that, that loving obedience, an obedience to who Jesus is and finding a delight and a complete joy in that obedience. Well, that's what it's all about in terms of living a godly life. And 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that everyone who wants to live a godly life, in other words, remaining Jesus, will be persecuted which means they persecuted him. And if our lives are lived out with any kind of consistency whereby remaining in Jesus, we become more like Jesus or we share the words of Jesus, then it's inevitable that we will arouse in people around us at the very least confusion and sometimes just out and out animosity. Again, because we stand for the things that the world is against and we're against a lot of the things that the world is for their worldviews very different. But you might be forgiven for thinking after those first two points that the reason is basically a, a relational hatred or the reason for the hatred is relational or it's sociological, but it's not. It's actually deeply theological. It's rooted in what people believe or more to the point, don't believe about God. And that's what the third thing is. They do not know God. Look with me at verse 21. They will treat you this way. In other words, they will hate you because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. And verse 3 of chapter 16 as well. Look with me at that. They will do such things that is put you out of the synagogue. So just completely ostracize you and leave you really so destitute. And they will kill you, even offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So the root problem you see for those who do not follow Jesus Christ is that they do not know God. That is one of the reasons why, the primary reasons why they hate and persecute us. So perhaps just a little bit of encouragement in here is that this isn't necessarily a personal thing. That is their hatred. And the big issue here is that Jesus highlights that it's a lack of faith in God. And 
I wonder if you saw the king's speech when it came out with Colin Firth. Uh, the king's speech uh, recounting the story of uh, George VI. The, and the reason why he came into power, those of you who know uh, the history of this, uh, despite being second in line to the throne, was that his brother Edward abdicated the throne. And why was that? It was because he was in love with a woman. And he was not able to marry her and be in a relationship with her and still remain the king. So he abdicated his throne. Now some people found that absolutely odd. They found it bizarre. They thought, why would a king give up his kingdom for a woman like this? And a reporter apparently at the time even asked him the very question. And Edward's response was quite simple. Why, you must not know her as I know her. You must not know her as I know her. And I think that can account for some of the hatred that we experience from the world, some of the persecution that we experience. They, they don't know God. They don't know why we live our lives the way we live them. And so we can be hated. And the fourth thing they hate, the exposure of their sin, verses 22 to 25. Basically what you see here in this section, if I read verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for sin because Jesus has indeed come and spoken. And if I had not done among them, so his deeds what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen the miracles which testify to his being the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet they have hated both me and my Father. And this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So through the words and the works of Jesus, people see their guilt. And some react badly. <laughs> I think, this, I think one thing to say is it says if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. This, this isn't saying that if Jesus hadn't come, there would not have been sin. No, it's simply saying that the world would not have had the full knowledge of their sin had Jesus not come into the world and even died on the cross to show us the extent to which he will pay the price for our sin. But since he has indeed come as the light of the world, exposing really the rottenness of the sin in this world then the world will hate him and hate those who follow him and bear his name. We thought about this in John 3, didn't we? Verses 19 and 20, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, Jesus being the light. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When the people at the time killed Jesus they thought they were extinguishing that flame putting out that light and that they thought that that would bring some kind of relief for their eyes that were really only conditioned for darkness you know what that's like don't you I'm sure you've been asleep in a dark room at some point and quite enjoying your being in a dark room and then someone comes in and then just turns on a hundred watt bulb you know do you like that Oh, thank you for waking me up. No, you're like, turn off the light and you're pulling your covers over your head. You don't like it. I think that's the way the world reacts to 
the light of the world, Jesus Christ, through his words and his works, exposing sin. And now that he has risen and ascended and speaking gospel words and showing us, the, showing the world what it is to live for him through our words, through our lives, people have the same reactions and it can bring about hate. Because when you speak the truth and live the truth, it can grate with people who love sin and live a lie. And let's be real, we're not talking about this arrogantly here because this was each and every one of us before we believed, wasn't it? I loved sin and I loved the lies and did whatever I wanted to do. We all did. But the world says, you know, I feel the world doesn't cope with that and, doesn't, and struggles with that and reacts against that because what you have there is Jesus coming down and declaring this is true. Whereas we live in a world just now where people like to say, well, I feel that this is right for me and this is the composite framework of my belief and my worldview that I've taken from all these different places. For me, this is true. So when we come along declaring the words of Jesus through the Bible as objective truth and therefore say, that's humbly, that's wrong. Let me show you true truth. They react against that. And it does not go down well necessarily. And you know what that's like. No one likes to be told, you're wrong, you need to change. I didn't like that when I wasn't a Christian. And that was made very, very clear to me. But still, we need to live as Christians such godly lives and not shrink back from any of these things so that we can better show forth the love of Jesus Christ even in the face of such hatred. And what Jesus is saying to us, even through these four things with his disciples, as he's saying, love, 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 love. Remain in me, remain in me. Bear fruit, bear fruit. Be fruitful for the gospel. He's saying to them immediately after that, and don't let these things catch you off guard. Don't let these things cause you to go astray, but remain. I'm telling you these things now. I'm giving you a heads up so that you can prepare for its coming because they will ostracize you. They will alienate you. Some will even, as chapter 16, verse 2 says, think that they will offer a service to God by killing you. Now, there are various objections, which I'm already hearing from you, not audibly, assuming, that come to this. Well, I don't experience this hatred um, I actually found that people in the world are quite nice. Actually, I believe that some people in the world are actually nicer than some of the people I know in Charlotte Chapel. You were all thinking that one. How do we account for that? Well, we account for that with common grace. Some people are good. Some people are quite nice. But fundamentally, that's not what counts, is it? It's their relationship with God's. But could it be, could it be that the reason why we don't experience this kind of hatred, could it be the reason why we don't experience this, this kind of persecution, could it be that we look as if we live for the very same things that the world lives for? Could 
Could it be that our lives really don't look like they're strict for sacrifice for the Calvary roads? Risking absolutely everything for Jesus Christ in his name. Could it be that we never ever actually talk about Jesus? Could it be that we never actually get to the point where we move the conversation from first gear into second gear? Never mind moving up the gears as we try and talk about the gospel. Could that be the reason? Could it be that our lives are just too comfortable? I mean, maybe we don't experience hatred because we sit back and settle for a casual relationship with Christ and religiously looking things like coming to church on a Sunday. It's safe in here after all, and the world likes us in here, keeping our Jesus to ourselves. Comfort and ease and a lack of real risk-taking, even in relation to what we were thinking about this morning, can cause such inertia in the church. I, see, I think we see it nationwide just now. And a sluggish inactivity will achieve nothing for Jesus and nothing through the church but decline in death. And that's the challenge we face. Because maybe the reason why we don't experience that kind of hatred is because we love that comfort. Our, our lives look more like, or our church looks more like a luxury liner than a troop carrier, as David Platt puts it in his book. Not the footballer, the, the, the pastor. In a book called Radical, he tells the story of the SS United States, an $80 million a troop carrier made for war. At the time, it was one of the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. It can go like 12,000 miles without stopping for food or supplies or anything like that. The only problem is this thing never ever carried troops. Despite being put on standby during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was converted essentially into a luxury liner for presidents and statesmen and celebrities who wanted to cross the Atlantic in style. And Platt says, sometimes the church can be just like the SS United States. We're designed for a serious mission to mobilize a people to wage war on sin. Yet sometimes we find it all too easy to turn the church into a luxury liner, not engaged in winning the battle for people's souls, but indulging ourselves in the comfort of the world loves and as I thought as I thought through this I thought what do I do with this tension here because we are told we are going to experience this kind of hatred and then I believe that largely even looking at my own life well I don't really I see some subtle persecutions and I see in, in, in my own life none of my family are Christians I see that and you know uh, I see it from some friends. I see it from people who kind of keep a distance. We certainly see it in a wider national sense in terms of the legislation that our governments are looking to put through or, or keep hold of. But what do we do? I mean, we're, we're told to expect this hatred and yet we don't really see it. Maybe because we're not really living lives which attract it. The question just kept on coming to mind is... I wonder actually, if it, if it was made illegal tomorrow to be a Christian in Scotland, would the authorities find enough evidence in our lives 
to convict us and put us to prison. And I'm ashamed. If they came in here, maybe. I'm standing here. It's a giveaway. But out there, I feel the conviction of this massively. Massively. And I just think, well, there's a tension. I want to do this, but then I'm facing these things. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to be hated. You know? And we, what do we do with most of our time? We spend most of our time trying to be liked and loved and winsome. Well, that's fine. As long as we don't forget to tell people the gospel. Otherwise, we're just putting a wee blanket over them and making them feel comfy all the way to hell. I feel the conviction of this in my own life, and I hope you do too. Because if we are going to plant churches, if we are going to see these seats filled, then we need to take it up a level. Maybe a few. And here is, here is the relief. Okay, you ready for the relief? There is a pressure to stray and not remain in Jesus. Why? Because the world hates you. Why does it hate you? Because we don't belong to the world, because we belong to Jesus, because they don't know God, and because they hate the exposure of their sin that our lives and the truth of Jesus brings. How are we going to do this? How will we manage to do this? The second point is the very presence of the Holy Spirit. God is with you. God is with you. That's where we get the ability to stay. That's where we get the the ability, not just the ability, the courage to stand up and even in the face of hatred. Maybe even when our parents are slipping arsenic in the food. We can say, let me tell you about Jesus. He is my life. Maybe as we're trying to make friends with people at university, we feel the loneliness of it. We're away from our own friends that we made at school or our own friends that we've been with back in the summertime. And we've come here, it's all new, and maybe we're willing to compromise on a few things just so we can make more friends and feel less lonely. But we'll be in trouble. We'll be in trouble if we just try hard to be liked. But here's where hope is. Verse 26. When the counselor, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the father he will testify about me and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning isn't this such great comfort when we believe in Jesus and when we follow him the truth is that through the Holy Spirit making his home in us we are enabled to remain We're enabled to remain in that love. We're enabled to remain in that that obedience that Jesus calls for. And we are 
We have our hearts filled with joy in the Lord and we have our mouths filled with gospel words to share. Isn't that exquisite? I hope you find that a relief because I do. (laughs) Because in the face of the hatred that I experience or should, the ability to stay and stand strong in Jesus, to remain in him, is found in his glorious presence and making his home with me and doing a sanctifying change of work in my life to make me more like Jesus as I live for Jesus and as I talk about Jesus. It's amazing. And he is in us. And he gives us words to say. Even read through Acts. Look at the number of times where the disciples the apostles and the church facing so much opposition where their lives truly were on the line. How were they enabled to speak out? Well, the Spirit gave Stephen a heavenly vision. Um, Jesus promised them, of course, when they're persecuted, they don't need to worry about what to say because the Holy Spirit will speak through them. The ability to stay is found in remembering that the presence of that there is a, uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit will help us to remain. Isn't that a sweet thought? We're going to think through more about the role of the Holy Spirit next week. And I want to move on just to deal with the second part of this, which says, you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Because the presence of the Spirit will not only help you to remain in Christ, the Spirit the presence of the Spirit will help you to testify about Christ, to witness for Him. And how precious this is, that we witness by speaking the truth to the world, a world that rejects truth, a world that prefers the lie. And we can endure patiently what the world throws at us without resorting to violence. We take blows without hitting back. And these are some of the things that testify. These are the things that testify to what Christianity is and what to testify to Christianity is that which is separate from other religions. And this is where by remaining and testifying, we just accept the fact that persecution comes and actually it sometimes nourishes the soil of the growth of the Christian church like we would never believe it. I think history testifies to the fact that, the, that persecuting the church is like smashing the atom. <laughs> I mean, it, divine energy of explosive quality is released and in enormous quantity and with considerable gospel effects throughout the world. I mean, we've seen this, surely. How else do you describe the growth of the church in China? (laughs) Were it not for the Holy Spirit, even in the face of persecution and hatred and trial, we are called to remain in Christ. Even in the face of hatred, We are enabled to remain by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. God is truly with us. What difference is that going to make to the way you live your life this week? What difference does it make that God is with you whenever you're in a conversation with, say, five of your other friends and you think, I'm outnumbered here? 
how will I ever win an argument against one of these guys? You know, they're, they're going to have better knowledge than I've got, you know, in this office. These are bright guys as well. And Well, we have God with us, the Spirit who lives in us, and we have the truth that we must preach. We must not shrink back or go astray. And let's not forget, let's not forget the words that were tucked away in verse 20. Jesus had just said, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Some did obey Christ's teaching. And some will hear the gospel and the teaching of Jesus that we share and respond well. And therefore, In summary of all of this, we are called as Christians not only to love Jesus and remain in him, but love the world we will be hated by. Knowing that the Father is still calling worldly people who do not know the Father to himself. People who will come in faith and in repentance. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I really would love to chat with you at the door. Because maybe you don't see this relationship with God as being so key. Maybe you don't see the difference. Maybe you don't see the chasm. Maybe you see there are shades of gray when in fact what God's word presents for us is there's black and there is white. You're in or you are out. You either know the Father or you do not know the Father. Know that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. In fact, Jesus Christ came into the world to make the Father known, to give you the most exquisite and perfect display and revelation of who God is that the world has ever seen. And we have the historical accounts of that. We have the truth of Jesus' words and teaching, his life here in our Bibles. And these are not man-made documents. And we can put our trust in him. And our encouragement is for you to believe in him, to confess your sin before him, that you too may abide in him and that he may abide in you by the Holy Spirit. So what about us as a church? As we draw this to a close, we must not shrink back or go astray. We must remain in Christ. We must live for Christ. We must aim for gospel fruit in everything. We must not shrink back. We must not stray away, but remain and testify, realizing that if we do go astray, the gospel will not spread, and lost people in Edinburgh and Scotland and throughout this world will not hear the gospel. And we must realize that if we are too scared of speaking out for Jesus to our families, to our neighbors, to our friends, students, colleagues, retirees, then how will the gospel spread to the nations? Because that is also our call. Not just church planting in Edinburgh. Your vision is too small. Make disciples of all nations. That's our scope. 
But if we are too scared of being disliked by people in our office because we value being liked more than we value Jesus Christ and their salvation, who will ever risk their lives by taking the gospel to the unreached people groups of this world who have not heard the gospel, who have no Bible in their own language, even to those groups who would be known for killing outsiders. I, 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 yeah. This is immensely challenging. There has been a radical change that takes place in us by virtue of Jesus' choice of us. I, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. I chose you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We have had seen a radical change in our lives, but this is a radical challenge for the church in this day and age to stand up and to speak out. Will we So we're going to plant churches, okay? And we're going to share the gospel with people. Are you okay with being hated? Oh, I'm going to find it hard, but I, I am. Even if it means my family hate me. I long more than anything for them to come to Christ. But if, if, if this is what we are called to do, this is what we need to do. Let me leave you with words of Samuel Rutherford. At a time, he wrote a letter to a man called William Fullerton at a time when things were going badly for the cause of Christ in Scotland. Uh, he talked about the wind being blown in Christ's face in Scotland in these days, and he wrote this from his prison cell to the young man, because he was persecuted. He said, I earnestly entreat you to give honor and authority to Christ and for Christ. And be not dismayed for flesh and blood while you are for the Lord, for his truth and cause. And howbeit we see truth put to the worst for a time, yet Christ will be a friend to truth and will act for those who dare hazard all that they have for him and his glory for his glory friends let's risk it all let's risk it all for his glory let's pray